0: All right. Super. Well, welcome everyone to Wednesday night. And we are just excited to be able to continue on going through our study in the book of Genesis. Again, those of you tuning in online, a warm welcome. And uh, we are going to be in Genesis chapter. Chapter 14. I had to think about that for a second. I was like, where are we going to be? 13, 14. Do I hear 15? How about 16? Do I hear 16? How far do you want to go tonight? All right. Super. We're going to start in chapter 14, and we'll just see how how far we can go here tonight. So, Genesis 14, we have here (laughs) the first recorded war in history. The first recorded war in history, though there may have well been earlier battles then this one, this year now we have a specific account of a military engagement before us that is much like watching a History Channel retelling of a great historical battle. How many people love watching, you know, the retelling of historical battles on the History Channel? All right, nobody just like me. Yeah, okay. Oh, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, we got a couple of you here. I knew there'd be somebody. All right. You're all a little hesitant. You're like, I don't want to be the only one raising my hand. Let's look. Around. Okay, there's more. I'll raise my hand. But no, we, uh, I'm sure we enjoy seeing those. But here in Genesis 14, we're, we're introduced right off the bat now to the combatants that are involved in this battle that we're going to see here. Look at chapter 14, verse 1. And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, And say this with me. Yes, exactly. It's actually pronounced like Keter-Law-Mer, keter Keter, law, or mayor, something like that. So we'll just say Cheddarhead because it's much easier to say that. And I just, you know, feel a little bit more easier to say it. So Cheddar, say Mr. Cheddarhead here. So um, is that disrespectful? Can we get, will anybody be offended if we just do that? He comes up a lot, and I don't want to keep trying to fumble through his name here. But you get the idea. Keter, Keter, law, or mayor. That's how you do it. So he's the king of Elam and then title, king of nations, that they made war. With Bera king of Sodom, Birsha king of Gomorrah, Shinab king of Adma, Shemabur, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, all these joined together in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea or the, the Dead Sea. So Amraphel now, first guy mentioned, he's, uh, he was at one point. Many scholars believe that this was speaking of Hammurabi of Babylon, where you've got the, the Code of Hammurabi, this code of ethics, and so many believe that this was the same person we're talking about. Most likely not the case, but Amraphel is the ruler of Shinar, which is um, Babylonia, modern day Iraq, and then we've got. Actually, I've got a map up here. We can put up there to see just kind of some of the locations. So Babylonia, then we got. Arioch is the king of Elisar, which is thought to be also in Babylon. Title, king of nations, or as it is in the Hebrew, Goyim, which means Gentile. So again, just speaking of some heathen nations, then we have Cheddarhead here. He's the king of Elam, which is east of Shinar, as you see on the map, and that's most, uh, mostly modern-day Iran there. And now Cheddarhead, Keter, the Keter, Keter, See, why am I going to try that? keter law or Mayor Cheddarhead? He's kind of the kingpin of this whole coalition of these armies that are gathering, this four-king coalition. Now, in this day, there weren't so much kings that were leading over, you know, large nations, but they were like city nations in a sense. And so they were ruling over these city-states, I should say. And so each city-state had this ruling king over them. So they're all kind of in a similar area as you see on the map here. And as we get down, uh, looking a little bit more at the other kings involved, we'll see that they're all kind of grouped together just in these cities. And so they had the different kings ruling over them. So these four kings now in the Babylon area, led by Cheddarhead, are all going to be coming against these five kings that are down in the, the Dead Sea area. Five kings that were from Canaan. And so, first of all, we see there's... Bera, who's the king of Sodom. You see Sodom to the right of the Dead Sea. And then again, these are, these are kind of guesstimates as to where the location was. We don't know exactly the locations of these places, so these are kind of guesstimates of where uh, they very well could be. And then Beersha, king of Gomorrah. Shineab, king of Adma. Shemeber, king of Zebuam. And then there's the king of Bela. Apparently he wasn't too well-liked. He's not even named here in our text. So we just have the king of Bela. We don't know who it was, he's not named. But these five kings now joined together along the Dead Sea in battle against the four-king coalition from the north. And when I say they're from the north, even though they're very much east of the Dead Sea, the travel route that they would take in this map outlines the travel of Abram. Remember, Abram came from Ur the Chaldees, Babylonia area. So they would always travel up north because... What's to the left? It's all wilderness. So the shortest path is straight to the west, but it's all wilderness. So they travel up north. And that's why whenever you hear about God saying, I'm going to bring a nation from the north against you, even though he's talking about Babylon coming against Israel, say they came from the north. So they're coming down from the north down to these five kings here. Now we get a, get a bit of a background as we continue on here in verse 4 as to why there's this battle that's raging. All right? So we've got... Those five kings down south, okay, we'll bring up another map in a second. Look at what it says in verse 4. Twelve years, twelve years these nations all served Cheddarhead, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Cheddarhead and the kings that were with him came and attacked the Rephaim in Ashtroth, Carnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shavakiriathim, and the Horites in their mountain of Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to Enmishpat, that is Kadesh, and attacked all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hazazon Tamar. And, verse 8, the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Siddim against Chedorahed, king of Elam, Tidal, king of nations, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch. King of Elisar, four kings against five. So, Cheddarhead here, as I said, was the kingpin. And it was common in this day for larger city states to exercise this kind of authority or political power over smaller city states and bring them into subjugation to them. Perhaps, you know, those smaller city states would pay a, a kind of tax, almost like a protection tax. We're going to pay you a tax, showing our loyalty and allegiance to you so you don't kind of mess with us. You just kind of leave us alone, that sort of a thing. So we find out here that after 12 years of Cheddarhead kind of ruling over those five kings that were there around the Dead Sea area, they'd had enough. They're like, 12 years, this this has just been too, uh, we're not enjoying this. In fact, let's see what we can do. And so they mount a rebellion and that could be simply saying, we're not going to pay you any tribute any longer. And that didn't sit well with Cheddarhead here. So what he does is he musters his allies, and they begin to march down now against these rebels. And as they're marching down, let's see here. So as they're marching down, we, we read that they came up to Rephaim up on the top right of the map there. They're marching their way down, and they're taking out all these other places here. It just says they they came and they attacked this place. They attacked that place. They basically are wiping them out. They're just making a clear path as they're making their way to the rebels that are down south along the the Dead Sea. But then it also says that they made their way all the way down south as far as El Paran, which is right down the wilderness. So now we're going way down south, and they made their way back up. They went against the, the Amalekites there. It says, um, and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hazazon. And it says that they made, their way to, um, they made their way to the Siddam Valley, the Valley of Sidom, And this is where they all got into a battle now with these five kings, five against four. And obviously there's more people with them as they're drawing people into the battle here. Now, it's interesting because the Old Testament presents to us Pictures of what is revealed in the New Testament. Uh, The Old Testament does, you know, physical pictures of what the New Testament represents in a spiritual way. And so what we're seeing here is, is we're just seeing these combatants. We're seeing this battle that's raging. And though we don't enter into battle like we see here, we're thankful that we don't have, you know, battles Uh, waging constantly or that we're under the threat of some city warlord coming down upon us unless we yield to their demands, right? We don't experience that. I hope you're not experiencing that. We'll pray for you if you are, but what we do see the reality is of these things happening in the spiritual realm. See, we understand that we have a very real enemy that would love nothing more than to bring us into subjugation of his ways over God's way. See, the devil's purpose is to bring us into bondage, all for the purpose of destruction. He wants to destroy you, and how we need to be those that stand up against the attacks of the enemy, and not give in, and understand that there is a very real enemy that is opposed. He's opposed against us, and that's why we've been given the armor of God to put on daily to be equipping ourselves in the armor of God, knowing that our battle is not fought in the physical, but it's fought in the spiritual realm against principalities and powers and how we need to pray and seek the Lord in these things here. Understand that bringing ourselves into the submission of God's will will always bring about a much better and peaceable outcome. You see, when God determined to give the land to Abraham, he was not arbitrarily robbing Peter to pay Paul. He was giving the stricken area a chance to operate on a new basis of peace and harmony. This, of course, is what he always offers the human race. But if history teaches us anything, it teaches us that man is not too quick to learn, that God's rule brings peace, whereas man's genius, not infrequently, creates trouble and strife. That's from Briscoe's commentary in Genesis here. And how we need to understand, just like these people are just battling in the... Physical, being brought into subjugation. The enemy would love to do that. How we need to be those that are quick to follow God's ways. And we're going to see that with one specific man who had that option. We'll come to that in a second here. So these next few verses, we're going to see firsthand just that trouble that we bring ourselves into when we choose our own will over God's will. Look at verse 10. So now the valley of Siddam was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled... And some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. Notice this in verse 12. They also took Lot, Abraham's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. So you're looking at this text, and, and unless we got to that part, you'd be kind of like, what does this have to do? We just started hearing about Abraham and being brought in the land and the promises to Abraham. All of a sudden, we're hearing about, all, what's this all about? Well, here's how it connects with the story of, uh, of redemption, in a sense, is because Lot's involved in this, sadly, as I was just saying. How quick we are to kind of choose our way over God's will, and we bring needless unrest and trouble upon ourselves when we do. So these five kings began to see that they were outmatched. They were getting defeated. They quickly fled. Some of the people there perished. And then their cities were looted, and sadly, Lot was part of the bounty, and he's taken away captive now. Now, here's the thing. We saw in chapter 13, just a couple weeks ago, that Lot and Abram split company. And remember, Abram graciously said, Lot, you choose where you want to go. Look out and just see all the open land. You choose where you want to go. You go where you want, and I'll go the opposite way. Abraham was very gracious in that. But what does it say? It says that Lot lifted up his eyes and he looked out upon the the plains of Jordan. He was lured by the beauty that he saw around him, kind of driven almost by the flesh. And it says that he pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. End of verse 12 in chapter 13. He pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. Not a good direction to go in. It, it told us there in chapter 13 that the people of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. John, lot would, would have been very wise to go, maybe I better not fool around with getting close over there. Maybe I better not tent myself here. See, we might feel like we can flirt with the things of the world, but the enemy is at work to lure us into closer proximity to that. We might think, oh no, that will never touch me. But the enemy has a way of just luring us in. Because notice what we see here in verse 13, or sorry, verse 12, chapter 14. that They took Lot, who dwelt where? In Sodom. He pitched his tent as far as Sodom, but now he's dwelling in Sodom. See, it didn't take long for him just to kind of have that downward drift. He was led by the flesh. He looks up. And with his eyes, is appealing to the flesh, the, the plains of Jordan. He moves himself towards Sodom. Now he's living in Sodom. Not a wise move, and he pays the price for it. Warren Wiersbe said this, Lot followed the path of friendship with the world, then love of the world, then conformity to the world, and finally judgment with the world. Lot thought that Sodom was a place of peace and protection. However, it turned out to be a place of warfare and danger. Saints rarely are captured by the world suddenly. They enter into the place of danger by degrees. And Lot is a fitting picture of that for us. Notice what we see as we read on, verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abraham, the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the Terebinth trees of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshkol, and brother of Anor, and they were allies with Abram. Now, when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his three hundred and eighteen trained servants, who were born in his own house, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as the women and the people. So, thankfully, one man is able to escape and he knows I got to go tell Abram. He goes and tells Abram. Abram gets word and we see him spring into action. Now, Abram could have easily had an attitude of, well, you know what? Lot made his bed. Now he's just going to have to sleep in it, right? It would have been very easy to say, Serves him right to go in that direction. But Abraham responds with grace and he responds in action. See, Lot becomes a captive, but Abraham becomes a conqueror. The difference becomes a matter of preparation. One man chose a life of pleasing the flesh and he was unprepared for warfare. The other now chose a life of faith and trust in following God, and he's going to be prepared for the enemy. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2, For no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Paul is saying, listen, don't get caught up in the things of the world. The world is temporary. And you you are in a battle. So be prepared for that. Lot dismissed that. He got comfortable. But he became a captive. Abraham, on the other hand, man, he's ready. He's looking to the Lord, not looking to please the flesh. He's looking to live by faith, and he's now going to move as a conqueror in these things. And this is pretty amazing. Abraham has 318 trained servants whom he armed. I think that's so awesome, man. We see just the, the blessing that's happening in Abraham's life, right? I mean, he's followed God. He's taken the, those steps of faith, as we've seen. And God's just blessing him. These are all servants that are born in his house. And, I mean, there's just a, a loyalty there. There's just a, a, a family kind of feel there, and they're they've all been trained up. Abraham is preparing not just himself, but he's preparing others, discipling others in a sense, right? And he marched this militia up against the armies that had just wiped out these these trans this transjordan area. I mean, when that when we saw those people that had came down, all these kings here now. Uh, Again, they came down and they just t- started taking out the Refam, uh, all these different people there, uh, Zuzim, and they just like one after the other, just taking them out. And here's Abraham going, "Well, I mean, they left a pretty big path of destruction. Let's see if we can, you know, make a bigger path of destruction now." And it says, "Like he's just not, he's not hindered." I mean, I, I'm going to have to say we don't know, but I'm going to say with these four kings and all their people, that's a pretty big army, I'd say. And Abraham shows up with 318 trained men. Now, that's a step of faith, isn't it? But isn't it wonderful what you see? It, it reminds us of Gideon, right? Who ends up with 300 men. He's got a whole number. And God keeps taking him through the test and go, you know what? Take him down to the water. Let's see how they drink. And certain, you take him out of there. Gideon's up to 300. And say, God, Sean, you know what? I want this to be so evident that this is me and not man. And how we never can fear when we're going up against what seems like the odds against us. Because as long as you've got God with you, you're in the majority. You're on the winning side. And trust Him. And so here's Abraham going up now. And he's got 318 trained men. And it says that he led them all the way up north uh, to the north in Dan. And, and that's like kind of the, the furthest point up north there in Israel. I mean, he just takes them all the way up. He's, he's down now, you know, south there, and then also he just moves all the way up to the north. He's just going for it, right? And what's so cool is, is um, when you go to Israel, you, we get to travel around, and we go up into the, the Dan region, and you come up upon this place. It's called Abraham's gaze Believe that Abraham, when he took this 318 man militia up there, that he passed through this gate that's in Dan. We get to go and visit that. We get to stand right there. How many people have been to Israel? All right. You've been to Dan, right? Been there. Isn't that awesome? We get to go and visit that. This is like 4,000 years old. It's like the oldest kind of thing that you see when you're in Israel. Just so amazing. I don't know when we're going to Israel again, but I'm just kind of preparing you. Get ready. It's going to be awesome. And we're hoping we can go again. We don't know. We're hoping. But it's a great time there. And you get to go see this place. So this is where Abraham went, took his men. And he, he strategically broke them up. And they, they went against the armies that were, at this point, doesn't seem like they're prepared. He divides his forces against them by night. And he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, now which is north of Damascus. So now they pursued them all the way up into Syria, north of Damascus now. And so, they're just doing an incredible work. Victory was achieved, and all the goods, including Lot, were now rescued. Abraham, in all this, is just a great picture of Jesus here. You see, Jesus left the comforts and glories of heaven to come to this world and pursue us when we were so undeserving of any kind of redemption. Jesus came and defeated the enemy. He freed us from the grip when we were powerless to do so. In Jesus now, we have freedom. As Abraham was to Lot, so Christ is to us. I'm so thankful for that. Just like Abraham, he just says, you know what? I'm going for it. I'm going to rescue this one. It's exactly what Jesus did for you and me. He gave up everything and he came and pursued us and freed us from the grip of the enemy to where we are now standing in the freedom of Christ. What a blessing that is. Now, here in verse 13, we see the first time that the word Hebrew is mentioned. Verse 13, they they reference Abram, the Hebrew. First time it's used in Scripture, this becomes synonymous with the Israelite people. The word Hebrew means one from beyond. See, God had called Abram in his grace when Abram was one from beyond. Abram wasn't from Canaan wasn't from the promised land. He's from a a distant place. He calls him, calls one from beyond and he brings him into the the riches of what God has from the blessings that God has. In the same way, Jesus, he came and he called the people that were seemingly beyond the scope of salvation and grace. But guess what? We've been brought in by the grace of God. Ephesians 2.13 says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, One from beyond, just like the Hebrew name means. You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Amen to that. Well, verse 17 says, And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of, of Cheddarhead, and the kings who were with him. I don't think we have to say that name anymore. Okay, thank the Lord for that. And then it says in verse 18, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham, Abraham of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. So on Abraham's way home now, Abraham is met by two kings, two opposite kings. The king of Sodom comes to meet him. That's Bera, whose name means son of evil. Kind of a picture of Satan here. Then you have Melchizedek, a mysterious man who is referred to elsewhere in Scripture in Psalm 110, verse 4, and then in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. Some have claimed that this Melchizedek may have just been a, a Christophany, a, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Many believe that was the case. I don't think that you need to draw that conclusion. I don't necessarily believe that he was but i do believe he certainly prefigures christ see the name melchizedek means king of righteousness and guess what he's the king of salem which would eventually become jerusalem and salem means peace so here we have melchizedek the king of righteousness and the king of peace does that sound a lot like jesus And the order is so significant because you cannot have any peace unless you first come to understand the righteousness that you've been given in and through Jesus Christ. So many people want peace without first receiving his righteousness. Because it's only when you come to know all that he's done for you that he's done the work in saving you. It's only when you come to know that it's not of yourself, but it's the free gift of God, by grace, through faith. And when you come to know that, then you begin to experience the great peace of God, because now you're no longer going, I have to work for this, I have to earn that. Have I messed up? Have I done something that's going to disqualify me from this? No, you realize it's all in and through Jesus Christ, by which I'm saved. I'm clothed in His righteousness, not my own. And this is why I'm accepted before God. And when you begin to have a firm, concrete understanding of God's grace and the righteousness that has been given to you, suddenly you just have such wonderful peace. You can go to bed at night just thanking the Lord that you're saved. Not worrying, Lord, have I done something today that may have messed up my salvation? Well, your salvation was never dependent upon you anyways. Now, if you screwed up royally, I mean, make it right, ask for forgiveness, and maybe you need to talk to somebody to ask for their forgiveness, but your salvation is not dependent on that. It's dependent upon your trust being in Jesus Christ. And when you comprehend that, oh, the peace that floods your soul is just so wonderful. Romans 5, 1 says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So good. And, and notice here what Melchizedek brings. What does he bring? Bread and wine. What's that remind you of? The elements of communion. Exactly. See, it's only through the sacrificial death of Jesus by which we can be made righteous. And that's why we regularly take time in communion to remember all that the Lord has done, his atoning sacrifice, his death on the cross. See, communion is, is no mere ritual. It's our very life. It's the very means by which we recall and remember that, Jesus, you've done it all for me. Thank you. I would not be here if it wasn't for what you've done. You are my life now. Thank you, Jesus, that you've done this work in my life. It's through his death and resurrection by which we have life and are made righteous. Now, we also see that Melchizedek is not only a king, but he's also a priest. He's a priest of the Most High God, a king-priest. See, the picture just keeps getting more complete because priests were to come from the line of Aaron, but Aaron's not even on the scene yet. This prefigures all that or or predates all that. And, And kings were never to serve as priests. These two offices were never to be combined. There was tragedy that happened when it did. Yet Jesus becomes our perfect king and priest, and he does so under the order of Melchizedek. Jesus himself not coming from the line of Aaron. But here, Psalm 10 says, oh, the Lord has shown or sworn and will not relent. You are a priest, speaking of Jesus, you're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So Melchizedek comes and he blessed Abraham. But it's Abraham that ultimately blesses Melchizedek through a tithe. And a tithe means simply a tenth. Now, there are some that love to argue today the tithes are just really unbiblical, at least for the New Testament Christian. That that was just something that was, you know, part of the law, you know, for Israel. We're not bound by the law anymore. So the tithe is not. And you get people that love to just kind of preach that and not be bound to anything. And there's truth to it in the sense that we're not commanding the New Testament to tithe, but we're encouraged to be cheerful givers. But you see, this is not something that's just under the law, because again, Abraham brings a tithe, and this is before the law is even given. This predates the law. So don't make the argument that, oh, this is, you know, when you tithe, you're just being very legalistic. You're just binding yourself by the law. The law is no longer applicable to us. Well, no, this isn't about the law. This predates the law. Abraham's giving a tithe, and he's setting, I think, a wonderful principle for us here. See, this becomes a very much an act of worship. Our money really begins to be an indicator of where our heart is. See, God doesn't need our money, but he wants our heart. And he wants our heart to be open to him in in worship, in in obedience, in in coming before him. And as we are those that are cheerful givers and faithfully give to God, there's a couple things that are at, at work here. We're doing a couple things. First of all, we're recognizing that all we have is from him. And we simply want to give back to him. Melchizedek says that God is the one who has delivered your enemies into your hand. In other words, it's kind of like saying God is the one that supplies all your need, Abraham. And God's the one that supplies all of our needs. And he gives us all things. So when we give to him, we're not saying, well, Lord, I've I've worked up a lot, but I just want to show you how much I love you. No, we're saying, Lord, everything I have is from you. And I just want to give back to you because you've been so good and gracious to me. And then secondly, we're showing that we trust God over and above our finances. Giving is a wonderful form of worship as we honor God and declare his worth in our lives above and beyond the worth of this world's wealth. We're saying, Lord, I'm relying on you more than I am this paycheck or this money here. I'm trusting you, and I want, to, I want to show you my heart is for you. It's dependent upon you. It's trusting you. And in this form of worship, I want to give to you to declare how much I love you, how good you are, and you are greater than any other kind of wealth I could ever have in this world. So Abraham gives a tithe, the tenth of what he's received. And as Abraham met Melchizedek, there, you know, there's no showdown over who's the alpha male here. Abraham's not going, hey, hold on a second. Do you know who I am? I'm Abraham, man. I'm, I'm called of God now. You should be giving me time. There's, no, there's none of that here. They both came and they blessed each other. In fact, it could be said that Abraham conceded the greater honor to Melchizedek in giving this gift to him. You always give to the greater, you see. Now, interestingly, Melchizedek gave a blessing Whereas the king of Sodom, Bera, son of evil, he wanted to take from Abram. He wanted Abram to give to him. Notice what we read in verse 21. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours lest and here's the key, Lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich. Except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. So the king of Sodom, he wants the persons. And, and more literally, it's implied the souls. It's the way of the enemy. He will offer up the riches of this world, but his desire is to make captive the souls of men and lead them to destruction. But notice how Abraham responds here. He didn't want to give an opportunity for the enemy to boast in any way. He didn't want this to be a cause for the enemy to walk away and say, uh, look at Abraham, see how blessed he is? Yeah, that's because of me. That's because of what I've allowed him to have. Abraham didn't want anything, uh, any boast or, or pride in the enemy. He wanted all the glory to be the Lord, you see. Abraham knew that God was able to supply all his needs and he would rather see it come from God so that God would get all the glory. How, how careful we need to be that we're not working strategically doing things in a way where it's opportunity for the world to boast in success, but rather give opportunity simply for the Lord to work so that when there's any kind of success or blessing, it's so clearly just of the Lord. I remember hearing a story from, you know, Pastor Chuck Smith, Pastor Calvary Chaplin, in Costa Mesa, and in their early days, you know, he had a, a businessman that had made some investments and, and, and done really well, and this man wanted to give a million dollars to, you know, the church at, at, at Costa Mesa. And, and Chuck kind of prayed about it, you know. And you know what he did? He ended up turning it down. Because he didn't want this man to have opportunity to say, Oh, look at the success of the church. Look at how the church is prospering. That's because of me. Chuck would rather have had the Lord provide that in a way where it would all be just to the Lord's glory. Pretty amazing. I don't know if I'd be doing that, but (laughs) good on Pastor Chuck to do that. That's pretty incredible. Now, the account in chapter 14 is a reminder for the Christian that... We have a few different responses to take in the world. I think Abraham kind of, you know, reveals some of these things for us. You can go the way of isolation. You can go the way of identification. Or you can go the way of involvement. Isolation says, as some Christians like to live, they like to live very insular from the world. They like to say, you know what, and we talked about this a bit on Sunday, we Christians will say, you know what, I don't wanna, I don't wanna get involved in the world. I don't wanna I don't wanna mess around with the world. In fact, I'm gonna separate all the more from the world. And it's that separation from the world that's really gonna show my sanctification and my holiness now. Look at me. Look at how good I'm I'm nowhere near the world. And that's one approach that people take. It's not the way of the Lord there's also identification where some people go to the extreme on the other side where they go, well, you know what? I want to kind of relate to the world. I want to identify with the world. So I'm going to just get involved in what they're doing and do everything they're doing, and and maybe there will be opportunity for me just to kind of have some inroads in. See, Abraham could have easily have gone the way of isolation and said, you know what, Lot? Again, tough luck for you, man. But shouldn't have gone and hung out in Sodom. You're getting your just." Rewards now for that. Abraham could have isolated and said, yeah, that's not my battle. I'm just trying to mind my own business over here and just live for the Lord. He could have gone on identification and said, you know what, Lot? Man, I'm going to come alongside you and hang out in, in Sodom a little bit with you and just kind of see what this is like here. But he didn't do that. The other side of you have identification, you have, uh, sorry, you have isolation, identification, you also got involvement. And, and what we're called to do as believers is to get involved in the world, not, not, to be, not to be like the world. We're in the world, but we're not to be of the world. So understand the difference there is that God's called us to go out, to be involved, to be witnesses in the world, to be doing our part, to be seeking to, save people, to spread the good news, to be a witness in the world, to see many people come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. You can't do that if you're isolating yourself. You don't do a good job if you're identifying with others, because that just brings confusion. People are going, well, what do I need the Lord for? You're just living every bit like me. But involvement says, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out, and I'm going to seek to Make a a difference as I live my life of faith, as I live for the Lord, and I seek to share the good news with people. Abraham shows us that role of involvement as he goes after Lot, and Lot benefits as he gets spared and saved and delivered out from the grip of the enemy here. It's a great lesson for us. Chapter 15. How are we doing? We're doing fine. we'll, We'll go through this. Chapter 15 here. It says, after these things, so after this great battle and deliverance of Lot, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, do not be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Now, I find this very interesting. Abraham has just come off a great victory, right? I mean, this guy could be just on cloud nine going, woo, man, that was incredible, 318 of us, and we routed this army. We got Lot back. We met Melchizedek. Man, we've got blessings here. This is incredible. He's on cloud nine. Great victory. And yet, what does God say? Do not be afraid. When do you have to speak those words to somebody? When somebody's afraid. And you're wondering, Abraham, what's going on? Why are you afraid? You've just seen an incredible victory here. What's going on? I find the description that God gives to Abraham a bit of a clue for us. What does God say to Abraham? Abraham, don't be afraid. I am your, what? Your shield. See, again, like we just seen, Abraham just defeated a a, a powerful coalition of kings. Perhaps Abraham is sitting here now, beginning to wonder, are they going to come back for revenge? Is there going to be retaliation? What's that going to look like? Have I just kind of, you know, stepped on the ant hill and now I'm going to get bit. Like, is this going to be trouble? But God says, Abraham, I'm your shield. I'm your help and defense. I'm going to take care of you. Abraham, it seems apparent, is kind of struggling through this, wrestling through and fearful over what the outcome might be. And yet God comes and he encourages him and he reminds him that he's a shield. Also, God says, I'm your exceedingly great reward. Again, perhaps Abraham doubted his move in returning those goods to the king of Sodom. Perhaps he wondered if he wouldn't have been better off keeping all the goods. Is he gonna go broke now? Was that a wrong thing to do? Why did I give it all up? Shouldn't I have kept some of it? And Abraham seems like he's wrestling in doubt over all these things. Listen, these are exactly the things that the enemy loves to do. He loves to cast doubt in our mind and make us wonder if God is really going to be able to help and come through in our time of need. Is God really going to be sufficient for us? Abraham seems to be struggling with that very fact here. And the enemy especially loves to attack when we're coming off mountain top experiences and victories. In our minds, we think, there's no reason, Abraham, you should be feeling this way. Maybe down the road when kind of the, the, the feeling of, you know, this great celebratory victory wears off. But, man, you just come out of this great victory. But it's in those times that we have to be so aware that when we've just experienced those mountain top highs or we've gone through those great victories, the enemy is going to be right there to look to come against you and rob you of all that God's done and seek to break you down. See, it's when we feel most strong that we're often most vulnerable. And and the same thing happened with Elijah, right after the battle at Mount Carmel when he defeated the priests of Baal. And he runs and he's depressed. He's worried, he's fearful. How we need to be guarding ourselves at all times. Keep walking in faith. Keep trusting and being dependent on the Lord. Don't let yourself dwell to the point of feeling this great strength and victory. Keep relying on the Lord. Because it's in those times where you feel most strong, that you become oftentimes the most vulnerable. Abraham's facing that, but God comes and reminds him of just this wonderful truth. I'm your shield. God's our defense, isn't he? God's the one that's our protector. He's our exceedingly great reward. Everything you need is found in him. He will supply all your riches uh, or all your need according to his riches and grace. God's the one that does that. How we need to stay reliant upon him, trusting him. But look at what it says in verse 2. But Abraham said, Lord God, what will you give me? Seeing I go childless in the air of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Then Abraham said, look. You have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born of my house is my heir. Here's another area that became an ongoing source of doubt and contention for Abram. So you remember, God had promised to make Abraham a mighty nation, right? Genesis 12. I'm going to make you a mighty nation. Oh, man, the world's going to be blessed because of you. But yet, there's no kids. No biological clock just keeps ticking down. He's not getting any younger. In fact, it's as though Abraham has given up. He says, I go childless. That's it. I'm not having any kids. God, where's that promise of yours? How are you going to fulfill it now? I've got nothing. You take Eliezer, my servant, he's going to be the the one that's going to have a mighty nation. It's not even blood. Lord, come on. That's not right. That's not fair. Abraham's like just kind of conceding to this reality, but he's not happy about it. Not exactly the way it was thought this promise would be fulfilled. But look at verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought Abraham outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And Abraham believed in the Lord. And he accounted it to him for righteousness. See, God has to stop Abraham's skepticism and doubt and bring a direct word to him, revealing that Eliezer is not gonna be the guy. I'm gonna bring an offspring from your own body. Just like I promised, it will happen. Abraham and Sarah are gonna have kids, as impossible as that might seem. God is giving Abraham opportunity to grow in faith and his story and legacy is going to be one that's going to add to the faith of generations to come. Think about this here now. God's prolonging this a little bit because it's going to be a wonderful story to show others down the road that when God promises something, he is faithful to uphold it. Even when Abraham and Sarah are like well past the years of childbirth, God's going to give them just a miraculous child. God is able. Do you realize that sometimes God delays things or, or brings you through trials and difficulties so that your life can be a testimony to others? So that God can fulfill the work in and through you that's ultimately going to be a blessing to other people. Think about that. I just think about the nation of Israel as they face challenge after challenge. They can just keep coming back to this and go, well, you know what? And we wouldn't, we wouldn't be here if God didn't do a miracle to begin with in providing a child for Abram and Sarai. If he did it then, he can do it again. Now, God not only tells Abram what he's going to do, but he gives him a very vivid picture of what this is going to look like. He takes him outside. He says, Abram, look up to heaven. Check out all those stars. Can you number them? Not a chance. How many people have been somewhere where you're just completely removed from any kind of, you know, city lights, pollution. And you're just like out in wherever it is, desert or uh, I remember being in Africa a couple of times and just going out to where like, there's no lights. on And you those stars just pop. You're like, oh my goodness, I never realized there's that many stars. Isn't it incredible? You're just like, when you first see just... An untouched sky or or the removal of any kind of pollution or destruction. You're just in awe of that night sky. And God says, Abraham, man, your, your offspring, your descendants are going to be as numerous as this night sky. So when Abraham heard that and he saw the reality of the stars in the sky, it says he believed, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, this is the first time that word belief is used in the Bible. It's the first time also that righteousness is spoken in the Bible. For those reasons, this has been one of the most important verses in the Old Testament. One of the key verses in all the Bible, it's quoted three separate times in the New Testament. We find it in Romans chapter 4, verse 3, in Galatians 3, verse 6, and in James 2, verse 23. And in each case, it's really used to state how Abraham is a type of salvation. He's a type of all who are saved. And that salvation comes through faith, by grace, unto righteousness. In Romans 4.3, Paul builds a case of justification and shows that if we were made right with God by our works, well, then Abraham would have reason to boast. But it doesn't declare that. Rather, it declares that Abraham was justified by believing. In Galatians 3.6, Paul again argues the faith versus works theme. And again, he brings Abraham in the picture to reveal that his faith is what declared him righteous. In James now, chapter 2, verse 23, James kind of uses this verse to argue for faith being demonstrated by works. That faith without works is dead. Abraham was made righteous by faith, but his faith was also one that worked and was demonstrated by what he did. So we see this verse come up repeatedly in the New Testament. It's a key verse. See, when Abraham looked up, he believed. You know, doubt oftentimes creeps in when we focus on our earthly problems, right? When we got our eyes just looking at what's in front of us, the obstacles, the challenges, but what we need to do, like what God did for Abraham, is, Abraham, look up to the heavens. Get your eyes lifted up beyond your problems and your circumstances and your your obstacles. Look up to heaven's potential and power because God is able. And as Abraham believed how wonderful to see that it was now accounted to him as righteousness. The Hebrew sense, as one of them says, is that he believed and he continued believing the Lord. W.H. Griffith Thomas observes, the original Hebrew for believed comes from a root whence we derive our amen. And we might paraphrase it, paraphrase it by saying that Abraham said amen to the Lord. Amen in scripture never means a petition but it's always a strong assertion of faith, like it shall be so or it is so. And see, the blessing that Abraham, the blessing that came to Abraham is that now he, he experienced the righteousness of God being credited to him. See, people are either going to try to attempt to credit their own righteousness to themselves. Or they're going to allow God to credit his righteousness to them. And it's only through the latter by which you can be saved. Our righteousness, as we know full well, as Isaiah says, is as filthy rags. Our righteousness means nothing before the Lord. And how often we try to clothe ourselves in our good works, in our efforts to be right with God. But it's simply in believing what God has done for us. And again, it's not believing in God. It's more so believing God. Abram believed. You see, there are many today that believe in God, but they've not put their full faith in simply believing God. There's a big difference there. For Abram, this faith and belief was linked to the promise of God. That through Abraham's seed, the promises of God would be fulfilled, that the Savior would come to the world, that there would be one to bless all nations, and that would be the Messiah. Abraham believed that God would do that. And for us, our faith is not just in God, but it's believing that God saves us through the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's what imputes the righteousness of God to us. Believing in God sets you no different than the demons that James says. They even believe in God and they tremble. Believing in God means nothing. It's that you believe in what God has done to save you. It's putting your faith in that finished work of Jesus Christ. And it's through that that imputes that righteousness of God in Genesis 13, verse 16, interestingly, God had promised descendants as numerous as the dust. And here in chapter 15, verse 5, it says numerous as the stars. MacDonald said that the dust pictures Abraham's natural posterity. Those who are Jews by birth, the stars depict his spiritual seed, those who are justified by faith. As Galatians 3, 7 and 9 says, Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, Preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. I love how that just kind of those words just get meshed together. They just become synonymous. Believing Abraham. That's it. Just you get blessed with believing Abraham. That's what Abraham becomes known for. He believed God. Verse 7 of chapter 15 here says, Then he said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So God reminds Abraham of the great work he's already done in bringing him out of Ur the Chaldeans. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Now, just when you think Abraham is getting it, here again, he has moments of struggle, moments of doubt. Because here he's asking now for tangible proof that God's going to, going to do this and, and i can't really blame them right uh, think about how many times we've been there and done that right where god seems to speak so clearly to us and then 10 minutes later we're like god is that really you did you if that was you god can you just give me a sign can you just show me would you just give me some confirmation god and we're so we're so slow to kind of really move forward in those things but god is so gracious praise him for that Because God's going to confirm now this covenant with Abraham, This becomes a very important chapter here. Look at verse 9. So God said to him, hey, okay, Abraham, you want me to confirm this with you? You want me to show you that you'll inherit it? Here, let's do this. Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then Abraham brought all these to him, and, and he cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. Now, this seems very peculiar for some of you, perhaps. But what's taking place here was a common way of kind of sealing a deal, of making a covenant with another person, a contract, you could say. And, And to kind of confirm that contract with one another, you would bring these sacrifices together. You would cut the sacrifices down in half, and you'd place them opposite each other. And the two people making this contract or covenant would walk through those cut pieces of sacrifice. They'd walk through it, and they would recite the terms of the deal, in a sense. This is what is taking place here between God and Abraham, only it wouldn't quite be carried out this way. Yeah, look at what we read here, verse 12. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abraham, and behold, a horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the iniquity of of the Amorites is not yet complete. Verse 17, And it came to pass, when the sun went down and it was dark, that, behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the, the Rephiam, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So, Here's the deal. In this covenant, God would not need Abraham to pass through. Only God did. And it's pictured in the smoking oven and the burning torch. Why isn't Abraham involved? Because this would be an unconditional, unilateral covenant that had no bearing on man trying to uphold this. This would simply be upheld by God. Yahweh himself. God isn't requiring man to uphold their end of the deal in this covenant. God is taking care of it. This covenant, you see, will not fail because God doesn't fail. And there's no other human involvement in this. This is given and made by God and God alone. An unconditional, unilateral covenant. The smoking oven foreshadows that Pillar of cloud by which God led the Israelites by day in the wilderness. The, The burning torch, the pillar of fire by which he led them by night in the wilderness. It was fire that came down on Mount Sinai when God spoke. It was a burning bush by which God spoke to Moses. The fire of God pictures this unapproachable holiness of God. And so from the fire here, God spoke to Abraham and he outlined the promises that were already given in Genesis 12 verse 7 promise of this land. We'll get to that in a second. But we notice a few things first. Before the fullness of the covenant would come, Abraham's descendants would spend 400 years in Egypt, and they're going to be servants there. But God's going to judge the nation, and then he's going to deliver them out, and they're going to come with great possessions. Why would that need to happen? Well, there's a couple reasons. God's going to take this small group of of Israelites into Egypt to allow them to grow in a protective environment in Goshen there in Egypt where they'd be protected from the, the, the sin that is rampant in Canaan. If God brought them into Canaan right away with such a pagan, heathen nation, Israel would have just been taken over by sin. But he brings them into a land where the Egyptians would want nothing to do with a shepherd people. They were able to be left unprotected, or sorry, left protected there, untouched by surrounding people or sinful practices. And they grew there in Egypt to be a numerous nation, so much that it began to send fear into Pharaoh. And God eventually led them out now as a mighty nation. Secondly, God allowed this to happen For the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete, it says. Now, that sounds like an odd thing to read, but ultimately, it speaks of God's patience in giving people an opportunity to repent and turn to him. God said, I'm going to give these people still time. Time to turn. Turn and and receive life. He's never quick to bring judgment. 2 Peter 3.9 says that the Lord is not slack concerning his promises. As some count slackness... But he long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And as things would progress, and as we know, sadly, things continue to progress in a downward spiral. But then it would become even more evident that that judgment was a righteous judgment because of the sin there. Now, at the end of chapter 15, God lays out there just the the borders of the land that God is giving to Israel. And it far exceeds what they have today. Here's the borders, according to Genesis 15, that the land, and that's probably kind of blurry Sorry about that, but you look at the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel today with the Occupy is a very small chunk of land, but the land that God was giving them, check that out, it is just absolutely huge. Here's another map here that depicts that. In fact, Israel has never fully occupied all the land that God had promised them. Guess what, guys? There's a future work to be done, and they will. I'm looking forward to that. God's not done with Israel yet. God's promises will be fulfilled. And so we look forward to that day. Well, that's Genesis 15. Genesis chapter 16. Let's just get into No, I'm not, not going to do that. We'll end it right there. Let's pray here. Lord, God, you're so good. And we just love you here tonight. God, so good just to travel through your word and look at these Old Testament pictures and examples. And Lord, just packed with truth that's applicable for us today. And we learn many lessons from a man like Abraham. Positive lessons, negative lessons, but Lord, we learned so much from this man. And I pray, as we saw his action in regards to Lot, that we would be those saying, Lord, how can I be involved in my world? Lord, that we might make a difference, that we might be witnesses, that we might see people be able to hear the good news and come to know you as their Lord and Savior. Use us in those things, Lord, and help us to be those that just become so relying upon you as Abraham lived relying upon you he went through moments of doubt and fear and yet God you reminded him that you are that shield and exceedingly great reward I pray that you would refresh that to us here today to know that you're a God that is dependable and faithful and we never need to fear in fact your word is packed with so many fear not statements and so I pray that we would just continue to look to you, abide in you, be comforted by you, and be strengthened in you. I pray that you'd do that for my brothers and sisters here tonight. God, lead us on from here and use us in these next few days to carry out your work, all for your glory. We ask in your name. Amen.